The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We continue in our look at verses 11 through 32. This morning, giving attention to uh, verses 20 through 24. We find ourselves really in the midst of perhaps Jesus' most famous parable that he ever taught. And it's an extended parable, one of the lengthiest ones, if not the lengthiest one. And we've taken it sort of in pieces and parts. Really, there are four things I set out to show you in this text as we launched in two weeks ago. I wanted you to see, and we looked at closely the first week, the nature of sin that Jesus was exposing in this story. And then I wanted you to see what the nature of repentance looks like. We looked at that last week. This morning, uh, we catch the third piece of this. I want you to see the nature of grace, the nature of grace. And that's what we'll give attention to uh, in our time together today. But just by way of review, in case you missed a week with us, we looked two weeks ago at what, what, uh, what sin looks like. And we sort of uh, got a composite picture of what that is. What does sin look like in the life of this young man who has come to his father and demanded his portion of the inheritance and has launched off on his own, rejecting his father and his family and everything associated with it and all of the morality and religion and all that's associated with that. He, he launched out on his own to do his own thing, live his own way, chart his own course. And as we looked closely at what he was doing and what he was saying, we saw a picture of what sin looked like. It looked like greed. It looked like rebellion. It looked like a, a lust for pleasure. It looked like a, a self-centeredness that cares nothing about anybody other than self. It looked like a, an attitude of ingratitude, a, a, an attitude of discontentment, a, a, an internal misery that, that can't be happy where it is, that can't be grateful for what it's been given. It looked like pridefulness that looks at itself in the mirror and says, I know better than anybody what I need. I am the most capable person of governing my own life. Not my father, not God, but me. And at its heart, it looked like a hatred, a, a hatred for his father, an outright disrespect, an outright uh, insult to his face to demand a portion of uh, his belongings before he was dead. An attitude that says, I really don't care anything about you. All I really want is what you have to give me. So give it up now. It's a really nasty picture of what sin looks like. And when we see sin erupt in our own lives, uh, it's almost always one, two, three, or some composite of these things that are, that are sort of the roots underneath whatever that sinful thought, attitude, behavior is that's coming out in our life. It looks quite similar to this young man. He might be sort of an exaggerated example, if you will, but in a, a thousand different subtle ways, those same thoughts and attitudes and sinful roots find deep places to, to sort of root themselves in our own hearts and our own lives. And you see it and I see it. 
But we saw last week that there's a, a sort of a, a response that can be made when we recognize that sin is happening. It's repentance. And this young man, he runs as far as he can run in his sin, and he ends up destroying his life. He ends up uh, broke and lonely and miserable, no friends, no job, no money, no things. None of the things he set out thinking he was going to gain does he end up with. He ends up in his last state feeding pigs for a Gentile man somewhere in a Gentile land. He's starving to death. And in that state, we were told in the text of Luke 15 that he came to himself, that he woke up, that he began to think back about his father's house. And he began to think back how, how good he had it then. That place that seemed so repulsive to him when he left, all of a sudden now looks incredibly appealing. And we saw what he does. He picks himself up and he begins to think in his mind through a response that he can give to his father. And he set, gets up and he gets on the road and he heads back to his father. And in his thinking and in his movement, we saw what repentance really looks like. We saw a, 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 a list of things that's really the opposite of the, that other list we looked at. It looks like a changed mind, a mind that thinks differently than it did when it was entrenched in sin. A mind that sees something that was repulsive before is appealing now. It looks like a humility uh, where, where there was pride that was just oozing out of this young man. He, he's returning humbled, not exalting himself anymore, but just looking for mercy from his father. It looks like accountability. A young man who wanted nobody to tell him anything is now willing to go home and submit himself in his father's household, not as a son, but as a servant. He's willing to be accountable to his father. He's willing to be accountable to God. His repentance looked like a, a whole new submission to authority. It looked like a whole new set of desires with the things that he, that he was trying to get away from because he thought he wanted all this other stuff. Now he longs for those things. His desires have changed. He wants to be with his family. He wants to be near his father. He wants to be a part of all that's related to his father's family, including his faith. And he comes back pleading for mercy. No more self-exaltation. No more demands for what he thinks he deserves. Now all he's got is a plea for mercy. His only hope is that his father would be merciful. And it's in that spirit that he returns, the spirit of repentance It's really a remarkable turnaround in this young man's life. It's really a remarkable picture to us of what it looks like to turn from sin and to return to our Heavenly Father. But that isn't the end of the story. Having seen the nature of sin and seen the nature of repentance in this young man's response, he now returns home. And as we pick up the story in verse 20, we see what happens when he gets home. And what happens when he gets home, in particular, his father's response to his return gives us this beautiful, incredible picture of grace. It's the name of our church, so it should be a subject of interest to you. Which grace is one of those Christian words that we use that we don't necessarily always stop to define. But the Bible talks about it front to back. That God who we read about just a few moments ago in Psalm 46, the God who makes wars to cease and who breaks the bow and shatters the spear, the God who burns the chariots with fire, 
we're told all throughout the Old Testament is also a God who is gracious and merciful. A God who's gracious and merciful. He's a God who's full of grace. So what is grace? Well, there's a lot of different ways to define grace. At its heart, it's a word that means simply God's unmerited favor. God's blessing that isn't earned and isn't deserved. It's a simple but true definition. Wayne Grudem defines it this way. He says God's grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. It's a good good definition. God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. A.W. Tozer defines it this way. He says, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. It's also another way of saying essentially the same thing that Grudem is saying. MacArthur defines it this way. He says, it's the free and benevolent influence of a holy God operating sovereignly in the lives of undeserving sinners. It doesn't really matter how you capture it and what words you use. The concept is really the same. It's the reality of God doing for men what they don't deserve and what they haven't earned for their good. It's God invading the life of a human being, a man or a woman, and doing good for them and granting to them what they cannot earn, have not earned, and do not deserve. That is grace. That's grace. And every one of us in the room, in one way or the other, is a recipient of it. This is a major theme in the Bible. In the New Testament, Greek, over 155 times does it talk about grace, particularly God's grace. Grace has always been an an essential, even primary characteristic of who God is. Occasionally, I'll run into people and begin to explore what their concept of God is. And I'll hear them say in some way, shape, or form, when they think about the Old Testament, they'll say something along the lines of, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. As though God were a split personality, or there were two different gods described in the Bible. But that is, in fact, a foolish way of understanding who God is. It's completely false. God has always been, and remains to this day, a God who is full of grace. We see this repeated over and over in the Psalms in the Old Testament. Psalm eighty-six, fifteen. But you, O Lord, are a God... Say it with me. Merciful and gracious. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you were flipping through your Bible, you could flip over to Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And you flip over a few more pages to 111.4. He's caused wondrous, his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and what? He's merciful. That's who he is. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. Are you beginning to see the pattern? That's only a a sampling of what the psalmists say in their refrain of this issue over and over and over again. But lest you think the psalmists came up with this on their own, you can start flipping backwards in your Bible and you'd realize that they're actually borrowing a theme that we're introduced to much earlier in the Bible. All the way in the beginning, Exodus chapter 34. We jump into the narrative of the life of Moses, God's ordained leader for Israel at the time. And we see Moses, and we see him on Mount Sinai. And we're told that Moses, verse 4 of chapter 34, cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning, and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there. 
and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord descended and proclaimed his own name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So where did the psalmists get their information about the nature of God? They got it from the most reliable source where they could ever get the information. They got it from God himself. He self-identified as a God who is merciful and gracious. Of all the things God could have said about himself and identifying himself to Moses, that is the very thing that God says. I am the Lord, and I am one who is gracious and merciful. That's who I am. I'm a God who loves to give unmerited favor to people who don't deserve it and haven't earned it. But you can even flip earlier in your Bible and see evidence of this before God self-identifies that way in Exodus 34. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember Adam and Eve planted in the garden? God gave them instructions on how to tend what he had created, and he gave them one thing that he had forbidden. Do you recall what it was? Don't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. If you do, what will happen? You will surely die. Even though your name's not Shirley, you will die. And we're told in the narrative, they ate of the tree. And the result of it was the eyes of both of them were open and they sewed fig leaves together. No longer were they righteous. No longer were they innocent. They were now sinful and guilty before God. And so God confronts them in their sin and their guilt. And you know the story like I do, right? God slaughtered them in the garden, and that was the end of Adam and Eve. Right? What? Wait a minute, i got to go back to Genesis here. Are you sure? I think you're right. Because Genesis 3.21 tells us, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God didn't kill them. They didn't surely die. What happened was he killed another in their place, diverting the penalty for their sin to another. They literally wore on their bodies a daily reminder of two things. Number one, their sin was serious and it required death. Number two, their God was gracious. He saved them. Not because they deserved it, not because they could earn it, but simply because he, by nature, is gracious. He's gracious. And really, as we move uh, to the, from left to right in the Bible, from the Garden of Eden into the establishment of the nation of Israel, and their whole worship sacrificial system, that whole sacrificial system really was a constant reminder of this very same message that God had sent to Adam and Eve, that their sin was serious, it demanded death, but their God is gracious, and he diverts his wrath, providing a way for them to live, even though they deserve to die. The constant activity of that whole religious sacrificial system made it very clear, though, that that wasn't a permanent solution. There must be more grace yet to come. And by the time we flip to the end of the Old Testament and we get to the prophets, we find the prophet Isaiah explaining to us the apex of God's grace that's coming 
In verse, 50, uh, verse 3 through 6 of chapter 53, we find Isaiah saying this. He, this is the coming Messiah, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. But we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was all the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah says, I've been rem God has been reminding you from the very beginning that your sin is serious and it deserves death, but your God is gracious and he's making a way for you to live. And here in Isaiah, he finally tells him how this is going to come about. There's a man who's coming. He's going to bear your griefs. He's going to carry your sorrows. He's going to have the totality of your sin laid upon him. He's going to be pierced for your violations of God's law. He's going to be crushed for your impurities, for your unrighteousness. He's going to be wounded so that you might be healed. And all this, Isaiah explains, God is planned and God is going to execute. And there's no human activity, not even cooperation involved. It's a gracious plan of a gracious God who's going to execute that plan without assistance. He will save his people from their sins because he is a gracious God. And he's going to do that through a man. Well, it just so happens that that man is the one who is telling the story in Luke chapter 15. And it's that very nature of grace that he is illustrating in very vivid language by describing in this parable the response of this father to his rebellious son. He's showing anybody who will listen to the story with ears to hear and eyes to see what grace looks like in practice. And here's what he tells us, beginning in verse 20. He arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now up to this point... Everything that Jesus has told of this story, nearly to the detail, would have been absolutely shocking to the audience that originally heard it. It was all upside down and backwards to any story that they would have imagined. But there's nothing about this parable that would have been more shocking than this father's response. Nobody would have expected any father to respond the way this father in this story responds. 
This rebellious son comes home. He's planned this speech that he's going to give his father, and he sets out for home. He went away from home with all of this money and ambitions and illusions of freedom. He comes back broke, empty, miserable, broken. I'm sure he must have been a a sight to see walking down the road. The kid that came walking home looked very different than the kid who walked away. He was a different man in so many ways. The trip home was a, a long trip home. We were told that he had gone way, way outside of Jewish lands and he'd, he'd found a home out among the Gentiles. So he'd made a long trip. He had a long journey back to walk, to think about it. Can you imagine what he was thinking on the way home? Probably thinking about how he's going to figure out how to gather resources to even make it home alive. He's flat broke. He's got to make the trip and get there somehow. But I'm sure his mind was constantly ringing with wondering, how is his dad going to react when he gets there? He doesn't know. What he doesn't know is that his father was waiting and watching the whole time. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Now, how could the father see him a long way off? There's a very easy answer to that question. Jesus tells the story and he wants him to. That's the answer. But it appears that this father had been watching the horizon regularly. That quite frequently, as he went about his day, he gazed down the road that led to their home and scanned all of the people he could see on the horizon to see if there was any evidence of a familiar face or a familiar stride or a familiar countenance coming down the road. He had a habit of checking off into the distance. He was watching to see if his son would return. And every time he looked down that road, maybe today's the day. This tells us something about his father's heart and his disposition already, doesn't it? It already gives us some insight into what kind of a father this father is. He's eagerly awaiting for his son to return. In fact, he's longing for it. Even while his son is far away in his rebellion, the father is already positioning himself to restore his son. He's already positioning himself to receive him back and longing to be able to do that. There's no sign at all of anger or bitterness. There's no sign at all of any rejection of his son. There's no sign at all of plans to make him grovel and beg if he comes back. There's nothing other than a pure longing to see his boy come home. On this particular day, he scans the horizon like he's done many, many times before. And lo and behold, he sees him off in the distance. He sees a familiar figure walking. Could this be him? I got a picture of this old man squinting his eyes and looking down the road in somewhat disbelief, wondering if he's seeing an illusion. But sure enough, it's his son. And we're simply told that while he was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. Upon seeing his son and and, and knowing for sure that it's him, this father does what nobody would have ever expected him to do. Absolutely nobody would have expected this. 
If the religious leaders were already shocked and indignant at the fact that this father would divide up the inheritance and actually give it to this rebellious kid, they would have been infinitely more shocked and indignant that this father would respond this way when he sees his son coming back. They would have lost their minds at this. Another note we're thinking about is this son's activity wasn't just a private family matter. It was a very communal society, and word traveled, and people knew what was going on in other people's lives. So the moment this kid took off and did what he did to his father and his family, everybody in the village would have known what had happened. They would have known how this kid had disgraced his father and disrespected him. They would have known how selfish and prideful and arrogant he was. They would have known exactly what he had intended to do and likely executed. In first century, Jews despised anybody who squandered their inheritance, particularly if they did it among the Gentiles. And so this kid, if he was to return to that particular village, uh, it, it would not have been a warm welcome from the village. If people saw him coming and actually recognized him coming from uh, where he came from to the village, they would have likely shouted at him and taunted him, even publicly shamed him for what he had done. There was even a public ceremony that, that the community could initiate that would have officially banned him from ever coming back to that village. And it seems that this father's response, at least in part, is intended to preempt some of that. We're told that he ran out to him. He doesn't wait for the, the son to come to him. He doesn't make him beg to have an audience with him. He, he runs out to meet him. Now, to our 21st century eyes, that doesn't really stand out so much. We see people run all the time. We even see older men run from time to time. It's not always pretty, but we see it. I, I, I fit that category now. In my mind, I can still run, but when I try to execute it, it's not pretty. I remember uh, not too many months ago, one of our elders who will remain unnamed for the moment come back from an, uh, a mission trip limping all around. And I remember asking him, what happened? Like, why are you limping? Only to find out that he had apparently challenged some kids to a race in a foreign land and immediately pulled muscles all in his legs. That's what happened when, when older men try to run, and they're not used to it. It's not uncommon in our day, but in the first century, to first century eyes, this would have been absolutely scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. No Middle Eastern father would have ever done this. It would have been seen as lacking in dignity. It would have been seen as shameful to run in general, but certainly to run toward a kid like this would have just compounded that a hundred times. Older men, wealthy men, did not run to anything ever under any circumstances. And this particular word, run, is not a word that describes sort of a light jog. It's the word that's used for running a race, for sprinting. So the picture is of a father who sees his son coming and throws all caution to the wind and just takes off running at a sprint toward his son. Men in those days wore robes. Uh, men today don't wear robes. We have to look to the ladies who wear dresses to explain to us how hard it is to try and run in one of those. 
The only way to sprint in a robe is to hike it up so that you can expose your legs and go so you don't fall flat on your face, which is even more lacking in dignity and more shameful. But to hike up the, the, the robe is to expose the legs and perhaps even a sight to the undergarments, which again, in that culture, was extremely, incredibly shameful. You just didn't do it. And yet this father does. He hikes up his robe. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He doesn't care what anybody sees. He doesn't care about the shame. He doesn't care about the disgrace. All he cares about is his son is coming home, and he makes a beeline to that kid to meet him down the road. There's a real sense in which, in order to save his own son from the public shame that's inevitably going to come, he takes the shame upon himself and runs to him and immediately restores him to full sonship. Phil Riken says it this way. He says, he was deliberately exposing himself to public humiliation. Rather than looking at the lost son and seeing what a mess he had made of his life, people would look instead at the extraordinary spectacle of a distinguished landed gentleman hitching up his robe and racing down the street, bare legs and all. By the time anyone realized what was happening, the father and son would have already been reconciled. The father was so lavishly compassionate in his love that he was willing to suffer any humiliation to restore his long-lost son. That's the action that's taking place here. But it's not just that he runs to him. What does he do when he gets to him? We're told he embraced him. That's what the text tells us. The word literally means he fell on his neck. This dad races to him and he immediately drapes himself on him in a bear hug. I don't know what picture comes to your mind, but the last sight we saw of this kid, he was wallowing around in a filthy pig pen feeding pigs probably wearing the last shred of clothing that he had for quite some time. He just made a long journey to come home, and there was obviously no Holiday Inn Express to stop at along the way and take a shower. And even if there was, he didn't have the resources to do it. You can only imagine what he looked like and what he smelled like. But this father couldn't care less. He runs up to him, and he just embraces him. He doesn't wait to see what his son has to say. He doesn't demand that he give an account for what he's done. He doesn't scold him for leaving and say a whole bunch of I told you so's. He doesn't lay out a list of things that this kid has to do in order to earn his father's favor once again. The only thing that we see coming out of the actions of this father is a father's joy at the return of his son. That's the only thing we see. He embraces him. He hugs that filthy boy as hard as he can. He doesn't stop there. We're told he kissed him. And the Greek word there indicates continual action. He kissed him and he kept on kissing him. I mean, this is just an incredible scene. No first century Middle Eastern father would do this. I mean, it's just over the top, Abun, over the top. No, nobody would run to him to begin with. <clears throat> nobody would hug on him even beyond that. And to begin kissing all over his filthy, rebellious son would have been unthinkable. 
But all of this are just clear expressions of unconditional love, undeserved acceptance, unequivocal forgiveness and reconciliation. And it had to have been absolutely overwhelming to that son. I don't know what he imagined his dad was going to do when he got home, but I can guarantee you this. He did not imagine his dad was going to do that. And just make a mental note that all of these actions of this father, he executes before the son has a chance to say anything. He hasn't yet delivered his speech. He hasn't asked for forgiveness. He hasn't shown any signs of true repentance apart from just coming home. And the father's action is preemptive. It isn't a response to something the son says or does. It's an act of unmerited grace that doesn't depend on any of that, actually. At some point between the hug and the kisses, the son actually is able to get a word in, and he begins to execute and deliver the speech that he had planned and rehearsed on the way home. He says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And you know what? Every single word of that sentence is absolutely objectively true, isn't it? It's true. He had sinned. He had disrespected and disowned his father, and he had squandered his inheritance, and he absolutely wasn't worthy to be called his son ever again. All of that's true. What he deserved was justice. He deserved to be rejected. He deserved to be banished from his family and from his village. In fact, he even deserved to be stoned by the village elders. But that's not what he gets. If you catch the flow of this whole thing, The father interrupts him in the middle of his planned speech. You remember as the son was rehearsing his speech in the pig pen, he had planned to say those very things, but he had another thing he wanted to say. He wanted to say to his dad, I'm here, I don't expect to be uh, welcomed as a son, I I just want to be one of your servants. That's all I want. But his father doesn't let him get that far in his speech before he interrupts him. He doesn't get there. The father's heard all he needs to hear, and he begins in the middle of the speech, apparently, to shout at the servants, giving them instructions on what to do now that his son is home. This kid may have returned as a servant, but he's not being received as a servant. And the father begins to shout, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. Unbelievable grace here. Bring the best robe. Incidentally, the best robe would have been his robe. Nobody had a better robe than the patriarch. I'm sure this kid came home in tattered, filthy clothes. Whatever was left of what he had. But the father quickly intends to fix that. The best robe was his robe. And it would have been the, 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 the robe that he would have worn on, on special occasions like a wedding or some reason to celebrate. He says, go get my robe, the best one, and bring it and put it on him. We find out this father is about to throw a party, isn't he? When the party happens, he's not going to be the one wearing the best robe. It's going to be this kid wearing his best robe. He says, put a ring on his hand. This, isn't, this is the family's signet ring. It's not just a, a mere piece of jewelry. It bore the family's signet. It's what the father would have would have impressed into a wax seal on official documents. 
It was a ring that would have authorized the son to conduct business on behalf of his family. It conferred, in a sense, all the rights and privileges and authority of the father to the son. That's remarkable, isn't it? And again, this this would have shocked everybody who's hearing the story. Because they knew that that robe and that ring rightly belonged to his older brother. They were part of his inheritance. And don't think for a second that that's lost on him. We'll see that in detail next time. He says, put shoes on his feet. Put shoes on his feet. This young man had likely lost whatever sandals he had long ago. Either sold them to buy food or wore them out. No, home, no doubt he, he made his way home barefoot. Sandals at that time in history were a luxury item. Sons had them, but servants did not. So his father says, go get him some shoes. It's a very small uh, and sort of seemingly insignificant way, though, to say, you are not my servant, you are my son. Son had to be blown away by that. He was just hoping to not get thrown out. He was just hoping to be able to to, to be among the servants and get enough bread to eat. No shoes were in his mind. Never in his wildest imagination would he have imagined this. And if that wasn't extravagant enough, the father says, go bring the fattened calf and kill it. Most of us aren't farmers. We don't have cattle. Some do. Some do. Some are farmers in the room. I was talking to one just this week who killed a, a creature to kill to eat when you do that you appreciate the value of meat and what has to happen in order to have it but in that day most meals didn't include meat only occasionally and this one was going to include meat but it wasn't going to be just any cow it was going to be the fattened calf it was a particular cow that was raised for a special occasion that was saved and intentionally raised in a certain way to be used for a special celebration in the future A special celebration that was going to attract a large crowd, like maybe your first son's wedding or something like that. A fattened calf could feed up to a couple hundred people. So the father's planning a big party, a major celebration. It looks like he's going to invite the entire village. And he says, let's celebrate. Let's throw a party. My son is home. At this point, it's so over the top, it's hard to even imagine, isn't it? This is extravagant grace. It defies human reason. How could the father not be angry? How could he immediately receive him without any evidence of sincerity? How could he receive him so immediately and so unconditionally? How could he make such a public statement so soon? Well, he does it, and he tells us why he does it. He says, here's the reason. My son was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. That language should sound familiar to you, shouldn't it? The two previous parables use the same language. A sheep was lost, but now it's found, and a celebration ensues. A coin was lost, and now it's found, and a celebration ensues. And now it's this man's son who was dead, and he's now alive. There is nothing in the whole world that could have happened in this father's life that would have made him happier and more joyful 
than what just took place, his son coming home. There was no more special occasion that he could imagine than that. It's pure, unadulterated grace. All of this happens totally by the grace of this father. Apart from any works on the part of the son, the only works that this kid had were sinful, rebellious ones. That was all he had. This was all about the grace of the father, the extravagant, unmerited grace of the father. You know, there are a lot of times in history I'd like to go back if I could have a, you know, remember the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Some of you may not watch stupid stuff like that, but I do. And, and uh, they had a phone booth you could get in and dial it up and you could go back in history wherever. I wish I had one of those. And if I did, I'd love to go back and see the Pharisee's face when Jesus told that story, particularly when he gets to this part. I can't imagine the look of bitterness to think of a father who would do something like this. See, they're self-righteous men, and self-righteousness hates grace. All of this isn't just a story, though, is it? It's not just a story to tweak the Pharisees. It's not the point here, although it's part of it. The story is meant to be a picture of Christ's love for his rebellious children. The father in the story represents Jesus Christ. This prodigal son represents every sinner who's ever rebelled against him. It's meant to show how gracious and merciful he is. How wide and how deep his love is. How he's willing to receive the vilest of sinners on nothing other than grace, not on their merit not on their works, not on any contribution they make to the, to the exchange at all, but simply because he's gracious. He'll even receive tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners who are in the audience when he tells the story. Jesus is a savior who's full of grace. And when his lost children come home, he doesn't require them to grovel at his feet. He doesn't give them the cold shoulder. He doesn't give them a list of to-do items to earn his favor back again. He doesn't make them earn their way back into his good, gracious, his good graces. He doesn't reluctantly restore them as slaves. He runs to them. He takes their shame upon himself and he lavishes them with unconditional love with undeserved acceptance, with unequivocal forgiveness and reconciliation, and he robes them with his own righteousness. He receives them as sons and daughters with all the rights and all the benefits and all the authority of him and his household. That's how Christ receives every rebellious daughter and son who returns to him. It's extravagant. It's in fact hard to believe. But he is a gracious and merciful God. And this is grace. This is unbelievable grace. This is undeserved grace. And it is the only way by which a man or woman can be saved. There is no other way. To come to Jesus empty-handed, 
with only the filthy rags that remain as evidence of our own sin and saying, I've blown it. I've squandered every blessing that you've ever given me. I don't deserve to be your son or your daughter. What I've done is so repulsive, I could never undo it. My only hope is that you would somehow be gracious to me and give me what I do not deserve. Forgiveness, love, acceptance back in your family. You have no reason to do this. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I never could. I'm just hoping that you're gracious. And Jesus wants us to know from this story that any daughter or son who comes back to him like that receives grace. Extravagant, undeserved grace. You say, on what basis can he offer that kind of grace? What about his holiness? What about the wages of sin? Does he just overlook all of that like the parent who just ignores the rules because he doesn't want to enforce them? No. He's able to offer that kind of grace because he paid for our freedom. In fact, the one who's telling the story in a very short amount of time is going to stretch out his arms on a Roman cross where he's going to shed his blood and die for the sins of every rebellious son and daughter who will come back to him. He himself is going to pay the price for the sin Though grace is free for us to receive, it isn't free altogether. It's very costly, in fact. But God has paid the price for us. That is the good news of the gospel. He took our shame and he paid the price for us. The Father gave his only begotten Son. It was costly for God so loved the world. If you know it, say it with me. That he gave his only Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Son laid down His life while we were still in sin, Romans 5.8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Oh, my friends, I don't know what you think about God, but you have to know Him as a God who's gracious. If you're here this morning and you identify with this young boy, you know what it's like to run away from home. You know what it's like to rebel against God. You know what it's like to live in your sin. If that's you this morning and you haven't come back to Him, what in the world are you waiting for? What in the world are you afraid of? Any fears you might have about how he's going to react or respond to you should be blown away by what you've heard and seen in this story that came from the mouth of the man himself. He is a, he is a gracious God who is not willing to smite you, who's not willing, waiting to scold you, who's literally scanning the horizon wondering when you're going to come home. And the moment he sees you, he runs to you with arms open, filled with grace. Not because you deserve that, not because you could earn it, because he's gracious. And because he's already paid for all of your sin. That's the reaction you'll get. Why would you not run to him? Why would you not come? 
Why would you die when you can live? What would keep you away from a God who's that gracious? Come to him today. Get up out of your sin. Get on the road and come back. If you're a Christian here this morning, I just want to ask you the question, is this how you think of God when you think of him? Do you think of him as gracious like this? I think it's pretty easy, even as believers, to maybe think about it when we come to Christ this way, but the longer we mature, to begin to think of God in other ways as though he ceases to be that gracious in an enduring way. Not only is he gracious when we come to him, but he remains gracious the whole time he keeps us with himself. Are you living in shame today for your failure? Are you living in hiding from your heavenly father as though you're worried he's going to smite you or scold you? Stop it. He is a God who is gracious and merciful. A God who even when you come to him the first time or the 100th time receives you with grace and restores you in whatever way you need to be restored. Oh, praise God that he's gracious, don't you? I mean, praise God that we serve a gracious and merciful God. Who else in the world can say that? Only those who worship the one true living God. Let's pray. God, we... We can't even begin to fathom this stuff. It seems so over the top and hard to believe that people like us can come to you in all of our filth and sin and rebellion and find you to be that gracious. I mean, there's something within us that knows we don't deserve that. There's something within us that knows we couldn't possibly earn it. And it's who you declare yourself to be. Lord Jesus, burn this story in our minds, in our hearts, that we might never forget this image of a father running down the road to his son. Before he even gets a chance to speak, just hugging him and kissing him, embracing him in grace. Burn that image in our minds so that we might never forget your attitude toward us, your children. May we live in the freedom that comes with grace. May we never stop celebrating that you are that kind of God and worshiping you because of it. And if there's someone in this room who is for whatever reason resisting returning to you, draw them today. Let them see your grace. And may it be a magnet that they can't stay behind that they might be saved. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.